Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with Gospel App Ministry. I'm so excited about this podcast. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our trek through the Sermon on the Mount, and hopefully you've been following it, but I have really, really great news. You won't regret this. My small group Bible study is ready. It's published. It's on Amazon. It's at our website, uh, ready for your church's fall kickoff or your small group's fall kickoff or just a private study you want to do. It's called Jesus Says What? And it's all about the Beatitudes. I mean, truth told, I've been using my podcast uh, to explore, discuss, dialogue, expand, express, do, do the exegesis required to better understand the Sermon on the Mount so that I could teach it more succinctly. I mean, you'll notice in the red, we're not very succinct. We're trying to get dialogue going. And thank you for those people who who uh, have played uh, by contacting us, bill at gospel-app.com. We love that. Um, so we've distilled all of the, the teachings and the Beatitude into seven modules, which come with seven instructive, professionally done videos for small groups. I mean, you don't have to be a Bible student. Uh, school graduate to go through this. You you gather the group, you put on the videos, we have discussion questions, we have prayers, we have, it's, it's all there. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. Listen, I think it's one of the best engaged studies that we've ever done at Gospel App, and it's the fifth, but don't take my word for it. In this podcast, uh, we're, we're going to listen to the trailer and and listen to the very first teaching module, module number one. So you'll know. Both are, uh, you know, uh, in reality, they're in video format, but we're just going to put audio, of course, in the podcast. You can check them out on our Engage Bible Study page, www.gospel-app.com forward slash engage. And, and just sit back and listen, and hopefully you'll like what you hear. You'll be inspired to gather a group or take your group through it. And let me cast a vision. If you know someone, and I know you do, maybe a young adult or not, it doesn't matter, who's left church, they become disenfranchised, maybe they've been kicked out of church, or you have friends who've left the church feeling like the church has left them, or are embarrassed to come into the church, gather them all up into a room, throw a dinner, and go through Jesus Said What? The Sermon on the Mount, and it's reflected in the in the Bible study, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't for innies. It wasn't for well-heeled Christians, but for the outies, those who've been beat up and shamed, who religion didn't want. I'm just saying, uh, it's fascinating stuff, and I think we've captured it. Like I said, I'm excited about it. Uh, okay, but before we get into those things, here's a brief word from our sponsors. When we get back, uh, we'll listen to the trailer, and then module number one. But look around you, your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung Hero, a for King and Country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. 
the Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. On that hillside in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was not speaking to the so-called righteous Christian, but to religious and societal rejects, the lonely, the isolated, the despised, the cut off. They did not have a voice. They did not have remedy. They didn't need new principles to live by. They needed a rescue, a heavenly benefactor. None of them expected God to care about them. Organized religion only shamed them more. Maybe you can relate. If you wanted one place in the Bible to experience heavenly social justice for beat up, marginalized, frustrated men and women, all colors, sexes, and sexualities, and histories of injustice of any kind, look no further than the very radical Beatitudes. Don't miss this. Nothing is more important or relevant today. Hey, Bill Sinyard here with Gospel App Ministries. Welcome to the first module of our latest and honestly, our most important group Bible study in our Engage series. We call it Jesus Said What? It's unique. It's bold. It's a new approach for a new generation that hopefully, I hope anyway, is going to change the world for the better. So welcome as you are, not as you should be. It's shame-free. You just may be surprised with a lot of what you hear. Maybe you haven't heard it before. And we think that the Sermon on the Mount gives voice to so many today, and that has not been fully unpacked until now. So welcome. No shame. We are at the cornerstone, foundational verse of the cornerstone passage of the unique, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to get this right. It's so powerful, so shocking. It's radical. It's relevant. It's going to cure a lot of ails in the lives of real Christians today and in Christianity itself, which historically tends to veer off its mooring sometimes. Here's the question. What does God's view of social justice look like and not look like? So many Christians today are deeply concerned for all of the injustices that plague our communities and world. Our world is getting more polarized, more violent. I mean, think school shootings, crime, unjust wars, terrorism, riots, just general incivility. Rampant homelessness. We're divided by race and sex and religion and politics and citizenship. More anxious about money and fearful of just what might come next. So many people are just stuck. There is so much more of the us versus them out there, more than I remember in my lifetime. So now what? Well, the Beatitudes. Far too often, the Beatitudes is brought out to teach, I mean, to be honest, comfortable religious insiders what Jesus would have us do or do more of so that God would bless us more or shine his favor over us more so that we would feel better about our Christian walk, our Christianity. 
And look, that's partly true, but it's burying the headline of the Sermon on the Mount and the clear intent of Jesus' message. On that hillside in Galilee, Jesus was not speaking to comfortable religious insiders. No, he was speaking, he was proclaiming the gospel covenant of God himself over those who had been shamed and rejected by those religious institutions. They were societal and religious failures. They didn't have a voice. No one was pursuing them until Jesus. But he sees them. He really sees them. He calls them the poor in spirit, and that's the harshest idiom that he could have chosen. They were society's miserable, the humiliated, the much maligned poor, not clean enough for God, or so some claimed. These were those who could not get their lives back together again, no matter how hard they tried. No one expected anything out of them. Frankly, they were nuisances, not worth spending any valuable time on. But then Jesus, and he intentionally pursues and embraces them as they were. It's amazing. Have you heard any of this? And then, and this would have captured a few of the regional news cycles, he says to them, the religious unclean, right? The unrighteous, those shamed in the name of God, he says to them that heaven is theirs. Well, no heaven had ever been theirs before. Isn't this fun? We have to unpack that, but you can imagine what the Jewish teachers did when they heard him say that. And I can't quote them in front of a mixed audience. Isn't this in contrast with the typical bent of much of our Christian messaging that the problem is that we're just not working hard enough, Christians, or faithful enough, or theologically sound enough. We're not pure enough, whatever you mean by pure. And if we just did more and enough, whatever that looks like, because there's no consensus out there, if we were only like Jesus enough, we would feel God's smile and pleasure and grow. That is, if we do the right things enough, honestly, Doesn't that sound more like the Jewish religious leaders than Jesus? You know, the ones who killed him. Jesus did not say that to the beat-up crowd that day. If their grasp of heaven was dependent upon how much they looked like Jesus or acted like Jesus, well, look, zero chance. And me too, by the way. Check out these two quotes. Here's John Barclay. Whereas good gifts were and still are normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God to the world, is given without regard to worth and in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients, but created it. Oh my goodness, we're going to unpack that. I I love that. Have you heard that before? Here's another great quote. Jesus' Beatitudes bless persons not because of the virtues, but because of their inadequacies. Oh my goodness, what sweet music is that? The Beatitudes are all about what happens when the kingdom of God bumps into those poor people who have been treated unfairly, unjustly, many chronically, who can't change their situation. No one has their back. Jesus has come, has pursued them as they are, and leans into these emotionally scarred people until they feel loved and honored, some for the first time in their miserable lives. That's the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the message of the Beatitudes. Have you ever heard that before? That's the heart of God. Do you want to see a very radical expression of biblical social justice firmly rooted in the gospel? Well, look no further than the Beatitudes. You may be both pleased and, by the way, shocked at what it looks like. So, who might get much out of this study in the Beatitudes? Maybe you feel embarrassed 
or left out of a lot of today's Christian rhetoric and dialogue, or if you feel that much of institutional church doesn't reflect your voice anymore, maybe you're beginning to feel that maybe God has abandoned you, or maybe you've even considered of not having anything to do with him anymore. No judgment. Welcome to Engage. You're welcome here. You won't believe what Jesus has to say to you and others like you. You're not alone. Look, I get it. There is no more anxious or lonely generation on record. No one wants another talking head lecture with carefully developed list of three applications that we've already tried a couple of times and it didn't help then either. We don't want to be shamed anymore. We want to feel honored. We want to feel enough, loved, like someone has our backs, like we are people of worth who can change the world if we want to. We want a place where people who have been church damaged can come without shame or embarrassment and reconnect to this Jesus. We want to be that place. The Sermon on the Mount will say that in God's heart, it's the not enough The down and out, the embarrassed, the ashamed, the marginalized, who can't fix their situation, who are most wildly welcome in God's kingdom, as they are. On the Galilean hillside, those people, people like me and you, will be lifted from their sense of unworthiness to feeling really honored. That is among the many other things that Jesus came to do. Listen to how he put it in his very first sermon. Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There it is. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. There's all kind of prisons. Recovery of sight for the blind. There's all kind of blindness. To release the oppressed. There's definitely all kind of oppressions. And here it is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To who? Well, to those who are blind and oppressed and beat up and marginalized. Jesus's passion is for those who have been told that there's no way they would ever feel the favor of God. They've blown it, or they, for whatever reason, have fallen short of expectation and norms or religious dogma. It's his passion to draw the unlovable, the unrighteous, the smelly, the awkward, the humiliated, the sinners, the impure, the bullied, the mistreated by chronic racism and sexism, the unprotected into the loving arms of God. He's here to make the chronically unenviable enviable. Jesus said, what? Who gets the celestial joke, by the way? That's all of us. We just don't always see us from God's perspective. Jesus didn't come so much to be a teacher. By the way, he did that, but it's so much more. He mainly came to be a rescuer for we failures, and we're all failures. So welcome, anyone and everyone. Everyone has a seat at this table. On this hill, you can bring your wounds, your scars, your fears, your shortcomings, your dysphorias, your failures, your doubts, your dark secrets, your uglies. Bring them all with you. I mean, what are you going to do? Get rid of them? The people on the hillside brought it all. And we're going to see Jesus at work with the beat up, with the unbelieving, those who the society would have labeled the unworthy ones, many of whom nobody would have gone out of their way to really help. I mean, think of the Good Samaritan parable. It's like that. But at the Sermon on the Mount, which was neither a sermon or a mount, by the way, real people felt something different in the presence of Jesus. There's a lot of true humanity happening on the slope then and now. So before we get to the message, let's look at the context. Who were those people on the slope in Galilee? I'm going to say more in the next module, but here is how Matthew describes the first audience, and us too, Matthew 4.23. 
Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. In your workbook, there is a place facilitator for you to toss out suggestions, use your words. They can be as personal as you would like. How might you describe this crowd today? If you want to, stop the video and just let the people play a little bit. Here are some words that people have tossed out to me. Diverse or high on the diversity index. Tribal, ethnic, food insecure, meaning hungry. Wounded, isolated, emotionally challenged, high risk, religiously unclean or cursed. Lonely, beat up, depressed, anxious, bullied, outies, not pure, mentally and emotionally troubled, sick, Helpless, unprotected, meaning no safety net, financially challenged, bottom 10% of the social food chain, not on anyone's A list or B or even C list. Would you see them as people who felt maybe that God loved them? Or was he disappointed and perhaps disgusted with them? Facilitator, you can stop the video again and ask that question. Which of these phrases do you think captures how most of the crowd imagined God really felt towards them individually? How would each of them have answered the question, what does God feel toward you right now? He loves me. He is disappointed in me. He is disgusted with me. He is angry with me. He feels compassion or mercy toward me. I don't have anything to do with God, or God doesn't have anything to do with me right now. Now, look, it's subjective, and we're just guessing, but we're likely pretty close. This is the crowd that Jesus gathered and spoke to. And by the way, still, experts say that no matter who you are, we all share a single stubborn, nagging question that our brain is subconsciously obsessed with. It desperately wants an answer. It starts in infancy, long before the child can express concepts and words, and goes on until we die. Black, white, brown, male, female, or non-binary, old, young, Christian, or other. And here it is. Is anybody there for me? So when an infant, a child, is in their crib and they're crying and crying, they may have a wet diaper or be hungry or scared. Their brain can't associate a reason for the dysregulation. But experts are saying that the dysregulation, the emotional dysregulation, is to get someone to pay attention to them and to comfort them. They're asking, am I alone or do I have someone who cares enough and has my back? Can someone come and help me emotionally regulate not just spatially, meaning you're not just in the room. It's about caring and attuning and touching that age. Comfort me. As we grow older, we parse that single question into two. Am I worthy of the love of others or your love? And can I count on you? 
If you're a parent or caregiver or guardian of a tween or teen, this is so helpful. We have an online training journey for Christian parents of that age called Good Enough Parent. And we just hammer this into our heads. Your adolescent is subconsciously driven to get these two questions answered all day. They want it from you. They want it from their peers, their social media. They want it from their mirror. But they will keep looking for it. Think an addict. Think obsessive. But let's look at it a different way. These questions can be described by two individual words, enoughness. All of us struggle with the feeling of lack of enoughness. David Zoll in Seculosity said this, Listen carefully and you'll hear the word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, Thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. Good enough, secure enough, smart enough for Christians, righteous enough, enough faith, pray enough, But employed enough, happy enough, mentally and emotionally well enough, good enough son, good enough daughter, good enough single or parent, pure enough, white enough, black enough, brown enough. We fear the lack of enoughness, and we desperately want more, often subconsciously. But obsessively, again, think addict. It's how we're made. In heaven, we're going to finally have enough, and we're going to rest in that. But this isn't heaven. The other word... Uh, Really kind of a four-letter word that we commonly use to describe this nagging sense, oppressive sense of lack of enoughness or falling short of expectations is shame. All right, back to infants. Infants will emotionally dysregulate if their brain subconsciously senses that, that they are not worthy of the love of their caregiver. Teens will blow up, they'll self-medicate, they'll be depressed, they'll become anxious, they'll disrupt situations, they'll do risky things to get attention, or maybe they'll just shut down. You've heard of that critical inner voice that lives in our midbrains whose skill set is to tell us we're just not worthy of the love of others, we're not enough? One blogger puts it this way, a critical inner voice exists in all of us, reminding us that we aren't good enough and don't deserve anything good. It tends to be louder and meaner in some of us than others. It tends to pick on us more or less at different points in our lives. To one degree or another, we are lonely and feel broken. So my subconscious brain, your subconscious brain, is always asking the question, am I worthy of your love, of the love of anyone? If I'm a high-risk demographic, or I sense that my primary parent or caregiver or guardian is absent, or they're abusive or neglectful, or they're focused somewhere else, I'm going to struggle to find this enoughness. I'll find it somewhere else, or I'll give up and just shut down. All right, listen, I hope that's been, we're not done yet, but I wanted to interrupt the, f- the flow because we got to get time in for our sponsors. But by now, you're getting some idea of what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it and the goal. And, and of course, the experience, I think, is better with the video and with the workbook in hand. Uh, 
the workbook has all of the video links. It's so easy to run in your group. You, 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 we, we know how to do videos now. It's also an engaged study. If you're not familiar with them, engaged studies were designed so that everybody in the small group gets to participate, right? There's no Bible school bully, uh, some theological exegetical bully. And so they're shame-free. And and it's and it's fine-tuned to accomplish that. We worked really hard getting engaged group. We we have rules of engagement at the beginning of the workbook. It's not legalistic, it's a lot of fun. Everybody gets to play shame-free. And it works. Okay. All right, a word from our sponsor, then we get back to where we left off in module number one. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, the second word is connectedness. Here's Brene Brown. What comes from the inside of us is a very human need to belong, to relate. We're wired for connection. It's in our biology. Connection is critical because we all have the basic need to feel accepted and to believe that we belong and are valued for who we are. And, you know, when we don't feel connected, we feel more and more alone, lonely, Isolated loneliness, scientifically we know, predisposes people to entire spectrums of mental illnesses. It's causal to depression, uh, social anxiety, suicide ideation, incivility. It's hyper-causal to addictive behavior. Neuroscientists conclude that loneliness is the social equivalent of physical pain. And like physical pain is functional in motivating individuals to alleviate the social pain. Rachel Wurtzman captures the threat of unaddressed loneliness related to addiction. She says, think of it like this. Loneliness creates a hunger in the brain, and our brains signal deep dissatisfaction. We become restless, irritable, impulsive. If we don't have the ability to connect socially, we are so ravenous for our social neurochemistry to be rebalanced. We're likely to seek relief from anywhere. And if that anywhere is opioid painkillers or heroin, it's going to be a heat-seeking missile for our social reward system. 
Is it any wonder people in today's world are becoming addicted so easily? Many of us believe that the opioid crisis is linked to the epidemic of loneliness. It fits. Well, according to recent studies, more than 30% of young adults reported problematic levels of loneliness. 68%, over two-thirds, say they feel like no one really knows them well. Oh my goodness, we have a crisis on our hands. My subconscious brain, your subconscious brain is always asking this second question, can I count on you? Or can I count on anybody? The people on that hillside were no different. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, humanity has not changed that much. So enoughness and connectedness. We don't have enough of either, and we want more, consciously or subconsciously. Or we have been so wounded, we stop expecting or looking for both. We come to believe that we don't deserve either. Enoughness and connectedness, by the way, together are the very heart of the biblical concept of righteousness in the Old and New Testament. We'll say more about that in a future module. So to be righteous is to have a relationship with God where you feel worthy of his love enough and you feel connected to him in his love. You know that you can count on him. He loves you no matter what. That's faith and trust. For we Christians today, we get it that Jesus purchased that, but many days, maybe most, we aren't exactly feeling it. But the Spirit's passion is to make us feel it every day. We'll say a lot more about this. And once we feel it, we are innately driven to make others feel enough and connected as well. So here's another exercise. Think back to the people on that hillside. Again, subjectively, which of the four following statements do you feel they would say they're experiencing now? I feel worthy of the love of others, right? Connectedness. I feel that I can count on others, enoughness. I feel like someone is there for me or none of the above. So we know Jesus spent some time healing physical ailments, but that wouldn't have dealt with the deeper needs above, right? No, Jesus is going to usher these unlikely people, drag them, invite them, if you prefer, into a a new relationship, a radical new relationship, where they actually feel like there's somebody there for them, maybe for the first time in their entire lives. Renowned child psychologist Yuri Bronfenbrenner said this about children, Every child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. We also find that this is true for teens and adults as well. The ultimate sense of worth and value is when we feel this from God. That's part of the gospel. More of that as we go along. We're just laying that foundation. Well, I want to spend a couple of minutes looking at the structure of the Sermon on the Mount as you go back and hopefully feel motivated to read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount a couple times. Uh, popularly and usually we speak of the Sermon on the Mount covering 5-1 where Jesus goes up the mountain and 8-1 where Jesus comes down the mountain. But Matthew's narrative artistry, which is impressive, it has a different goal. He is certainly trying to get us to see a broader Sermon on the Mount from 4-23 to 9-35. Listen to the exact bookended verses, 4-23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 9.35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This is good old-fashioned, smart Hebrew storytelling. 
We could also just look at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 to 12. They are noted by their use of the Greek word makorioi or blessed be. Some say there are nine, others say eight. We're going to go with nine. Uh, but honestly, to be a little provocative, the entire Sermon on the Mount can be represented, summarized by a single beatitude, the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to try to convince you that that's the linchpin. If you're looking for a single biblical vision statement for your church or organization or small group, I'm going to suggest that 5-3 would do. Or if you're wondering how your church or organization is in sync with the mission and passion of Jesus, here's a great exercise. Are your actions in line with the heart of 5-3? Is your message or your prayers or is it the way you deal with people? Are all those things in sync with the singular verse? We will take two modules just to look at 5-3. One last thing. It's been widely observed that there appeared to be a parallel between Jesus on the Mount and Moses on Mount Sinai. First of all, steeply rising ground to the north of the Sea of Galilee could hardly be referred to as a mountain. I live in Denver, after all. But Matthew picks the word that would have been powerfully charged for Jews of the crowd. In the Greek, he went up on the mountainside. And that's the exact same phrase used in the Septuagint version of Exodus 19.3. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. And then Jesus sits down, 5.1. In Deuteronomy 9.9, it doesn't mention Moses sitting, but the Hebrew Talmud does. So Jesus and Moses have a lot in common. Both were chosen by God to be deliverers of the people. Moses largely for the Jews, Jesus for all tribes. They spoke as prophets. They were both types of messiahs. So you could say Jesus is the new Moses in a sense, and that Moses was a foreshadow of Jesus, all good. All right, in closing, let me do a summary of the Beatitudes for us. Jesus is here for the poor in spirit. And that's those of us who not only need help, we need a savior. We need a gracious rescuer. We can't do enoughness. We can't do connectedness on our own. We have a record to prove it. We will never be good enough by any measurement. Whew, I said it. That is who he gathered. That is who he is addressing his words to. And this includes everyone. It includes us. It includes the multitude on the hillside. It includes the disciples. It includes the Jewish religious leaders. So much good news for everyone. Now, as I said, there are nine Beatitudes, three sets of three. The first triad talks about who these people were, and we're going to plunge into that more. What did they get from Jesus? And then the second triad is how were they changed? A miracle happened on the hillside. We want to dig into that. And now what? Now that they've been changed, what are they expected to do? And we're going to look at that more in the next module. I want to shift to something that's offered in every module in the Engage workbook. We call it the Simple Uncluttered Gospel. So important. Listen, our anxious and fear-prone midbrain, where that critical inner voice does its most damaging work, is very hard to get to and work with. Our prefrontal cortex, where we reason, where we think, learn, make choices, it just has little sway over our midbrain. It's in our midbrain where we mostly feel pain and loneliness and fear and shame and unbelief or not enoughness or connectedness. So is there a way to begin to witness to that unreached people group, our midbrain? Oh, yeah. The strategy really is similar to working with an addiction. 
It's very rare that someone just stops an addiction by going cold turkey and just willing it to end. It happens, but it's rare. Instead, experts have found that the best way to diminish an addiction is to create a new one that is more appealing and gives my brain the same or more dopamine hits. Just saying. But if you prefer and you don't want to think about an addiction, think habit. How do you shrink a habit? Well, if this is my habit, what what you do is you begin to start a new positive habit alongside of it. And over time, drip, 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 you build that habit up until there comes a time when your brain has another real choice when it triggers. And we have found that it's extremely helpful to build a new habit by preaching the simple uncluttered gospel to our midbrain. Now, it has to become a habit, so we have to do it every day, twice a day or more. By the way, I have to do that still, just saying. The key to forming a new habit is repetition over a long time. So we're talking 30 days, 60 days. Look, it only takes a minute to say the simple uncluttered gospels. And say it aloud, that's very important. If you can, say it to someone and have them say it aloud back to you. We also strongly recommend that you say it word for word. We get it that you probably wouldn't say it using the words we provide. You would say it differently. Okay, but we're trying hard to facilitate a habit that will last, so do that for at least 30 days. The Simple Uncluttered Gospel is in your workbook. You can also get it in bookmark form. We recommend that from our website, gospel-app.com. For now, just sit back. Listen. Just let it wash over you. Now, facilitator, if you have time, we strongly recommend that each module you break up into groups of two and you have them say the simple uncluttered gospel aloud to each other. And afterward, debrief. What hit you? What jumped off the page? What caught you by surprise? Uh, What bothered you? What might you disagree with? And remember, engaged groups are meant to be safe places where real people can voice whatever they want to voice, including disagreement. You're welcomed here. Here's the simple uncluttered gospel. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all his heart as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. So now, if possible, pair off and share the prayer aloud with each other. Facilitator, it's time to hear the voices of the group. Since all are welcomed at this table, that means your thoughts and words are as well. We've done a lot of research to shape a group, a dialogue structure that is shame-free, that actually encourages everyone to share if they want to. In the front of your manual, there are some detailed rules of engagement. Please take a look at them, facilitator, and I will go over just a summary of them here. In some ways, engaged groups are going to feel a bit awkward until you get used to them. The facilitator will give the question or statement to one person at each table, and they have one minute to give their response. And honestly, they can say just about anything they want to say. I have stories. And this is their time. It's very honoring. 
When they're done, they're invited to pass the question to someone else. And how? You look them in the eyes and you say, I am passing the question on to Bob or Betty or Levon or Chen or Roscoe. Use their name if you know it or see it on their name tag. And by the way, does anybody use name tags anymore? Just just wondering. Let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. I'm curious. And that person now has a minute to say what they want to say. And this is critical. This is not a place to debate with the comment of others. Not a place to show how smart you are. Not a place to criticize someone else's answer. This person is invited to give their answer, their thoughts. That's it. And when they're done, they pass it on as before. At Engage, it is perfectly okay and honorable to pass on the question. You just say something like, I'm going to pass on this. Good on you. You're still invited to pass it on to another actual person in the same manner as we've laid out. Cool? Each engagement question will invite us to take it down a little bit deeper, right? To take the elevator down a level. So just have fun. In this module, we have four engaged questions. And don't feel like you need to do them all. But here they are for our video audience. Engage question number one. What did you learn that you didn't know before? Do you agree or disagree? What most stood out for you? Push back. Engage question number two. Read the first three Beatitudes. How do you think the crowd would have heard these on that hillside in Galilee? What most strikes you? Engage question number three. Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard. What are your thoughts? Quote, and on your list of the blessed, you are really walking in the good news of the kingdom if you can go with confidence to any of the hopeless people around you and effortlessly convey assurance that they can now enter a blessed life with God. Who would be on your list of hopeless blessables as found in today's world? Certainly all of those on Jesus' list, for though they are merely illustrative, they are also timeless. But can we, following his lead as a teacher, concretize the gospel even more for those around us? Who would you regard as the most unfortunate people around you? Engage question number four. The speaker said that the highest of all connectedness and enoughness for any child is reflected by the following quote from Yuri Bronfenbrenner. Every child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. Is it possible that we could experience such connectedness and enoughness from God? Well, facilitator, before you get into those engaged groups, may I have a word with the people in your group? I'm guessing that you are probably like me, looking for enoughness and connectedness in a lot of places, good and bad, or some have just stopped hoping for enoughness and connectedness, right? So, And maybe this is the last place you imagined looking, and yet here you are. So welcome, as you are, to this hillside. No judgment, no shaming, no this is what you should have been doing all along, or now you should work harder at this. None of us have earned a positive relationship with God, and yet we're invited into it to experience it again, not by anything you do or I do. It's all about what he does. Just come as you are, sit down, listen, push back, agree, disagree, dialogue. All of that is kosher here at Engage. It wouldn't surprise me. It really wouldn't surprise me if today you are grabbed by something that you desperately needed and in a certain part of your brain desperately wanted. So welcome, Christian. There is someone there for you. 
A facilitator, if you have time, please, I'm begging you, I'm encouraging you to do the resurrection meal for your group. The description is in your workbook. The concept comes from Eugene Peterson. It's not communion, the Lord's table, but it is an invitation for your people to come as they are and dine with Jesus, where they are a people of honor. That's the idea, to look up in the eyes of Jesus. You're going to see how important that is. Many say that that is the most valuable and life-changing part of our engaged groups. Well, that's all for this module. Next time, we're going to look even deeper into Jesus' surprising, unlikely audience. Uh, feedback, we love it. You won't be the first. Bill at gospel-app.com. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. So, hopefully you're inspired and enthusiastic. Get the workbook. You can get it on Amazon, or you can get it at our website, gospel-app.com. At our website, we give you pack discounts, uh, but either one would be fine. And listen, please, help us get the word out. We got to get the Sermon on the Mount right. Let another person know, or family member know, or your church's small group coordinator know. And a little heads up, this is another exciting, more to come, but my novel on the Sermon on the Mount, the Rabboni, should be published in a few weeks. Uh, it's Matthew's voice. He's on the mission field a decade or so after he finishes his gospel, some 40 years after the Sermon on the Mount. And he's trying to actually explain, uh, unpack the Sermon on the Mount to a different audience in Ethiopia. And listen, here's what we're thinking. What a great thing, a cool thing to do the study and have people read the novel at the same time. We'll say more. Well, that's it for today's podcast. I want to just take a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find other faith-centered podcasts in their network. If you want to know more about Jesus Said What or the Rabboni or anything else at Gospel App, contact us, bill at gospel-app.com. Okay, back to the Sermon on the Mount where we left off in the next podcast. Until then, take heart, child of God. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.